Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. When coronavirus first happened, we were all adjusting to figuring out how long will things be shut down? Is this just going to be a week or two? And then a month went by and another month went by, and we realized that we were kind of settling in for the long haul here. In April and May 2020, so many of us were starting to think about all of the pregnant women who were preparing to give birth and all of the changing regulations that were happening. What would happen if you couldn't have your partner in the delivery room or if you weren't allowed to bring a doula in? And it seemed like every week the guidelines were changing and the stress that was <laughs> the stress that was happening for birthing mothers was just unparalleled. And it's still happening. And we're still asking questions about how are we going to navigate this? How are you going to navigate this? So many of you are still figuring it all out in real time. And I know that it is nothing like what you'd hoped or planned for. I know of so many people who are trying to figure out how to prepare for birth inside of this maelstrom of crises. And then other people who are asking, is now even a good time to get pregnant after all? Is this going to change my family planning? Like, what will this year bring? All of this reminded me of one story that I'd heard of through a friend about a very challenging birth situation that had some parallels to what people are going through now. No, it's not a pandemic, but it was similar. So I reached out to Megan Hale, and I asked if she'd be opening to sharing her birth story because it felt so familiar. She has two kids. She gave birth before COVID started, but she has a similar story. She is a military mom, and she spends significant amounts of time away from her partner as a solo parent. So there's a lot of trying to get her job done and all of the work and all of the childcare while spouse is not there. But more specifically to the point, we talk about her birth story. She had a really challenging first birth with her first kiddo. And so she was hoping and preparing for a relatively easier or at least different second birth. And that didn't happen. Right before her due date, her husband and her mother both got the flu. The flu was going around in her house, and she had to be quarantined away from the two people that she wanted to support her. And then she had to go through birth alone. Devastating? Absolutely. She's here to tell us about it, how she got through it, and the journey she's been on since in processing and moving through the parts of childbirth and parenting that can be traumatic. I am thinking about every single person who is going through pregnancy and birthing right now and in the next coming months and through the rest of this year and figuring out a birth plan that probably feels nothing like what you wanted it to feel like. I find such reassurance and camaraderie in hearing other people's stories that have gone through things like this. So Megan and I did this interview on Voxer. So we did it through phone tag. And it took us five weeks to do this interview. So we started it in May 2020. And then we didn't finish it until the end of June 2020. So along the way, also more things kept unfolding and happening. So you're going to hear us have a long extended drawn out conversation via Voxer. It's different than the normal interview style. But if you've been listening to any of the other interviews we've done via this audio walkie talkie app, it'll be just like that. We also talked to Megan about her work, the work that she does in the world, her parenting journey, her entrepreneurship journey, what she's learning today, and so much more. So let's dig into this conversation with Megan Hale. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur 
and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. One of the things that we have to think about today as parents that past generations didn't have to think about as much is data and privacy. How do all of these newfangled technologies work? And more importantly, how do they keep our data safe? As a new mom, privacy is one of my top priorities, especially when it comes to my kids. That's why we are so in love with the sponsor of today's episode, Nanit. Nanit makes the only video monitor that I trust to keep my data and my baby's data safe. It comes equipped with two-factor authentication. All of our data is covered by 256-bit encryption, and it keeps our data private from the outside world. So we get the baby monitor and the sleep help that we need, but all of the personalized data that we get is kept safe just for us. Nanit even allows you to create multiple user profiles, which is called the parenting team. So you can safely and securely share your baby's most precious moments with the ones who matter, but also the only ones that you choose. Go to nanit.com today. You can check out their Nanit Plus smart baby monitor. And startup pregnant listeners, you can use the code startup at nanit.com and save 10% off of your order. Everyone, I'm so excited to have Megan Hale joining us today for an interview on the Startup Pregnant Podcast. So we are doing something different here with the Startup Pregnant Podcast because we are now in the middle of coronavirus and COVID-19, and many of us are stuck at home. You all know that I am stuck at home, and I've been talking about the journey on the podcast and what it's been like to be inside of New York City I am going to be doing a couple of interviews via Voxer, which is an online walkie-talkie app where you can drop voice messages back and forth with friends. And then I'm going to download the audio messages and stitch them together. So this entire interview is not being done live. It's being done asynchronously. And I am thrilled to be welcoming Megan Hale to the show. Now, if the audio quality is a little bit scratchier and it sounds like we're on our phones, it's because we're on our phones. And if you hear our children in the background, it's because I've got two children in New York City that are, how shall we say it, not quiet all the time. And she also has two little ones at home. So the reason I wanted to bring Megan onto the show is because Megan went through kind of a crazy story. I even haven't heard the whole story. I just know the outside glimpses of it. Megan went through kind of a crazy story when she gave birth to her second kiddo, and she went through and lived through something that many people right now might be living through, or at least has some similarities and parallels to. And so I wanted to just talk to Megan about her parenting journey and hear a little bit about the work that she does and then also ask her about her birth story because I think hearing these stories will be really helpful for so many of our listeners who are pregnant right now or who are giving birth and are dealing with the sudden changes in the world. We don't promise any answers, of course, but we are here to listen to Megan's story. So Megan, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Can you tell us what time you woke up this morning and what your morning routine looks like. Tell us where you are in space and time right now and what your morning looks like. Not like a typical morning because I don't think moms necessarily have, parents don't necessarily have those, but just like today. Like, Did you wake up at three? Did you wake up at seven? What was your day like? Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. So you're catching me on kind of an off day in the sense that this is not super typical. So I think during quarantine life, I have been 
actually even pre-quarantine life, I was kind of just getting up when my kids got up and we would just go about the day. Today, I actually woke up at 6 a.m. and I did a strength workout on the Peloton app. And that's really how I started my day, which was really great and refreshing. I'm going to try and do that more often. (laughs) I'm finding with everybody being home that having some space and time that is just my own is really, really important. And I know that you have been waking up early for you just to get some writing done, to drink your morning coffee. And I think that it's just, it's like life giving to be able to give that to ourselves. So that was how my morning started today. (laughs) And I'm trying to make that more of my normal. Ooh, I love hearing this. I, yes, I am typically a morning person and I love getting up and I have been doing a lot of like 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. shifts during coronavirus to try to get some stuff done. But actually the last week I have been so sluggish and I've been getting up at 7 or 7.30 or just like dragging myself out of bed at 6.45. And my partner and I have been doing I'll work six to nine, he works nine to 12. But then when I sleep through half of my work session, then get some coffee and start by 7.45 or eight, it's like, well, I only have an hour to get any work done. So it's been really challenging for me to kind of figure out like all of it. I mean, it's been challenging for everyone, I'm sure. But it's been really challenging to try to figure out how to even organize myself when it's like we switch places. Now I'm like, oh, what do I do? Also, Peloton is amazing. I have been doing their strength workouts in the afternoons now. I just started that Andy Spear program. If anyone listening is on Peloton, they have like a four-week weights program that I'm just starting to do to see if I can get a little more energy. Anyways, I'm already digressing because we're on Voxer doing an interview. Love, love that you were able to get up early in the morning. Let's start with quarantine routine. What does it look like right now? What's happening in your life? Can you tell us about your family and your children and what you do for work. Can you give us the lay of the land there? Yeah. So I'm doing that same program too, the four week I just started today. I'm really excited about it. So, and I'm really glad, like really grateful for the community too. Like that's like the best part about Peloton. But anyway, so it's been really interesting kind of finding our groove with all of this because, you know, my husband is basically home which is great. Sometimes he has to travel for like a week at a time, which has been interesting (laughs) to figure out without childcare. When we first started all of this sheltering in place, I have been working half days in my business for pretty much since I've been a mom. So the past four years. So not much has really changed in that regard of like, I typically work in the afternoons and pre-quarantine life. Like I had some morning time. The kids would go to daycare. I would go to yoga. Like I would have like my own practice and then I would start my work day. And so when we first started this sheltering in place process, my husband was kind of doing his thing in the morning and I was watching the boys and then we would flip flop. So we were doing like an eight to 12 shift and then a 12 to four shift. And that seemed to be working really great. Like we both had our own time. Now we just actually did a complete 180 (laughs) where I'm actually working in the mornings now. And then he has the afternoon free because everything that he wants to do is typically outside and it's typically warmer in the afternoon. So we're being like really flexible with each other. The only thing that's really hard is when he has to go on a mission and it's a seven day mission. And then basically like everything just has to rearrange because it's just not it's not realistic for me to have a typical work day while also full-time parenting. So 
that has asked me to get a little creative around what that looks like. And basically I'm leaning on screen time and literally only scheduling like one call a day, typically trying not to schedule any calls at all in any given day, just because it's just, it's hard to ask a four-year-old to basically entertain himself for an hour, even if the younger one is napping. So that's how everything is working on our end. And it seems to be working well, but as I'm sure, you know, as I'm sure lots of us are feeling, it's like, even if you have like that good rhythm without having all of the outlets that you typically have, there's still kind of that cagey feeling from time to time. So I think we're all just trying to manage that and just find healthy rhythms and boundaries for everyone just working together as a family unit. And I do think there's lots of gifts in that of like really having to work together as a team and be really intentional with what we're needing and asking for what we're needing and all of those things. So that's how everything is working over here so far, but (laughs) it's definitely like a moving target of us really having to check in frequently and saying, you know, is this working for you? Is this working for me? And kind of going from there. This is so interesting to hear. I'm really curious about each individual family's schedules and structures because there is no like one universal job and there's no one universal family necessarily. I will say as an aside, it's taken me forever to reply to this Voxer because when I can do it, my kid is out in the living room and we play, he's on the iPad. I have an almost four-year-old and then a one and a half-year-old. So the one and a half-year-old is currently playing with water in the bathroom sink and his toothbrush. He loves dipping his toothbrush in and then like sucking on the water. And then my almost four-year-old is playing with the iPad in the living room. I can see him right now. And we play the volume of the iPad. We link it up to the stereo speaker so that we can hear what he's doing. That's our like parental monitoring hack, if you will. But I can't, I'm having a hard time getting onto audio because I can't, there's a constant, if you hear it in the background, there's a constant like, let's go outside. Like There's just like all these little kids tunes. And with that, my one and a half year old has heard me and he's here and he wants to say, <laughs> this is like, he's got a toothbrush in his mouth and he's so, so happy with himself. The question I wanted to ask was, can you tell us about what the kind of work that you do, the kind of work that your husband does and take us through a little bit of your work history? Like, How did you get to the kind of work that you do today? And take a long time to answer it or answer it in like little fits and starts, whatever works with your schedule. Everyone listening, y'all know that we are trying to do interviews via Voxer and it's all an experiment. So I'm so thankful for Megan for being one of the earliest experiments. And then also, I'm curious to see if it's going to even work, but we're going to go with it. So tell us about your work history and your career twists and turns. I know you have such a cool backstory. I want to hear all about it. Yes. So my husband is a military pilot and we have been together for 10 years now. So we've moved around quite a bit, which is partly why I am doing what I'm doing now. I started off in the field of psychotherapy. I think I've always known that I wanted to help people live more fulfilling lives. And so I went the traditional route. I got my master's in clinical counseling and I was one of those kids, like at 15 years old, going through depression and anxiety 
where I experienced therapy for the first time. And I remember sitting in that therapist's office of like, this is what I want to do. So I had this adolescent dream of opening up my private practice, which I ended up doing. And what I did not anticipate is that this was going to be my first step into entrepreneurship and working for myself. And I knew in that moment that I didn't want to work for anyone else. I loved the freedom of creativity and setting my own hours and all of the things. And I also knew that we were going to be moving around every two to three years. And so the idea of starting a private practice every two to three years was kind of crazy making. So that's when I started kind of getting curious of like how else I could use my skills and my training in a different way to help more people. And at the time, a lot of my therapy clients were women who were presenting with depression and anxiety, relationship issues. And there were some themes popping up in our work together that as we started to kind of get into the work, the thing that was showing up most prevalently is not living true to who they were and what they truly wanted. And so a lot of our work was really around understanding what their authentic expression was. So then I started getting curious. I'm like, I wonder if other people are struggling with this, right? Of like not living true to who they are. And maybe they're not necessarily coming to a therapist's office, but they're still struggling in this way. And so that's when I found coaching. And I took the leap into coaching in 2015. I retired my therapy license and just jumped in with both feet. And I haven't looked back since. At the time, it was really scary because not a lot of my colleagues really understood like why I was doing this. They saw it kind of as a step back. And for me, I saw it as a huge opportunity to expand. So Back then, I started with really helping women clarify their purpose and creating some authenticity. When I was a therapist, I focused in cognitive behavioral therapy and also blended in spiritually oriented psychotherapy. So I love like really tapping into the soul of who someone is and really helping them start to build that inner self-trust by listening to their intuition and all of those things. So that was an easily uh, transferable perspective, I would say, into the coaching market. And the longer I was coaching, the more I started growing in my business and the more I started really loving just the science of business and all of the different elements that go into it that really allow our business to be that vehicle of us expanding into our fullest expression. And so that kind of led me into business coaching. And then in 2017, I had so much deep healing work around money. I started implementing Profit First in my business and it was just a total game changer. And so that really led me to becoming Profit First certified, which this is kind of what I currently do now, right? I'm a Profit First business strategist and CEO coach of really helping women who are purpose-driven become more profit-focused and start running their businesses from that CEO role versus um, simply being somebody who kind of identifies like I run a business, but I'm really like a coach, helper, or healer, or creative. I really help them step into or expand into that other role of really seeing themselves as the chief executive officer of their business and really starting to lead that way to step into more impact and more revenue and more growth and a lot more alignment in their businesses. So that's kind of the the longish version, I guess, of how I've come to do what I do now. Oh, that's not long at all. I mean, I could sit here and ask you questions about every moment of what you just told me because there's so many things in there that I, I think are so important and so interesting. Like, 
just the fact that our careers and our trajectories can be so winding and evolving and changing and that we don't pick a career and then we're static for the rest of our lives, but we pick something and we grow into it and we follow it and we learn it. Like, I think that is such an important point. And I love when I talk to people getting to hear this from them. Now, I know I could stay here for a long time and I want to sink my teeth into what you do, but I also think you gave us such a good overview because I have such big questions I want to ask you on this interview. I want to ask you about your birth story and I want to ask you about what you're doing currently with coronavirus and all the things. So my next question is going to be actually about your parenting journey. So can you tell us about your kiddos and... Did you always know that you wanted to become a parent? And what was that like for you? Give us the same kind of overview, the window that you took us into in your personal life. Give us a glimpse into your parenting journey. And I really want to talk to you about the birth of your second child. So let's start to dig into all of this. It's really interesting because I was never like the little girl who just dreamed of growing up and getting married and having kids. And it actually was not until I met my husband that I even wanted to get married. (laughs) And it was not like an immediate thing that I just then automatically wanted kids. And in fact, I went through probably like, gosh, a three-year period of being really ambivalent, of really seeing my future where I could be happy either way. And that was a really excruciating place to be <laughs> of really kind of being able to go on either side. And I think it took a while to kind of, I guess, arrive to the knowing that this is something that I wanted to pursue. And now on the other side of it, being a parent, like there are still some days where I'm like, I really could see joy either way. Because <laughs> parenthood is probably the biggest thing that I have ever taken on. And especially, you know, in the season of having littles, it's just, it's a very demanding time. I think on all different types of levels, it's spiritually demanding, physically demanding, mentally, emotionally, like relationally, there's just lots of things. So the journey to parenthood has definitely been a very well thought out one. I will say that. And I'm really glad that I went through that because it really helped me sort through like what it was that I really wanted versus how much of me wanting to become a parent was just because it was something that I thought I was supposed to do. So it's all good, but going through it was definitely really tough. And now that I am a parent, there are times that are still tough. And I think that I've noticed that it's really easy for parenthood to be romanticized a lot. (laughs) And I think that that was probably the thing that I was least prepared for, like actually being a parent now is that there's a lot of hard stuff in here and a lot of opportunities for growth, if you will. Oh, Megan, I find this so fascinating. Interestingly, I think I made the assumption that you were someone that always wanted to have kids. And I'm kind of mind boggled by what it is that made me think that because I know so many different people and so many different journeys. And like, I know how much it has changed for me, even in my own life. So hearing you say that is really, to me, fascinating. And then also, I want to dig in there a little bit more. Can you talk about that? You said it was a, a long period of figuring it out and coming to, okay, I am going to have children. How did that feel for you? First of all, the not knowing 
and the ambivalence. Can you talk about that? Because there are so many people who are listening to this podcast that come here to listen, not because they already have children, but because they don't know whether or not they want to have kids. There's so many people, I think it's about a third of our audience is in the 27, 28, 29, like, okay, I want to think about my career or 30, 31, 32. Like, I want to think about my career and the intersection of children. And I want to figure out whether or not I want to have kids because I don't know. So I'm really fascinated about this. And you mentioned also, you said figuring out what you really wanted. So this is question two. I'll write them down in our Voxer channel here because it's a lot of questions. But question two, you said figuring out what you really wanted. Oh my goodness. How did you do that? How does one figure out what they really want? Because when I meet with people, I tend to see that some people think it's really obvious. They're like, oh, this is what I want. I know it. And other people are like, I have no idea what I want and I don't know how to get there. So I'll write these two questions down, but what did it feel like to be in that process of discovery, the not knowing? And do you have any words of advice for people who are in that process? And then the second question is, what's the process of figuring out what you really want? What was that like for you? So I think that the short version is therapy. (laughs) Therapy was definitely a piece of really navigating all of this and figuring out what it was that I wanted. And this was actually something that I did on my own and my husband and I did together because he was kind of more on the side of not wanting children. And that created a whole nother dynamic of like really having to navigate all of those pieces. Because I also knew, like, I think in the middle of it, going through it, the option of having kids was something that was really, really important to me. And so if that option wasn't there, I didn't know if I was going to be able to stay in my marriage. And so that, I think, also offered me some clarity of, like, if the option is that important to me, like, maybe there's something there. So I think for people who are navigating what it is that they want, I think the thing that... I had to come to terms with is that nobody could tell me (laughs) the right answer for me, no matter how much I sought outside of myself, because everyone had a different opinion, because everybody has different values, right? Everybody has a different vision for their future and what they want that to look like. And for me, I really had to get still and really start to listen to what my true belongings were. And the part that makes this hard is that a lot of times what we think that we want is so heavily impacted by the rules and shoulds of the world. And I think having to stay really curious and do some digging of like removing those layers was probably like the hardest part of all of this. So I think for me, it's giving myself space and time. Like this was not something that was an overnight process. This was at least a year of therapeutic work of really digging in and having lots of conversations with myself, with my therapist, with people that I cared about, with my husband, and really looking into the future of what I imagined for myself there. And really looking at, I'm really big on not having regrets in my life and living my life in such a way that I'm going to minimize those. And I think at the end of the day, like looking into the future, knowing that I didn't go down this path, there was just something in my body that said that isn't the path for you. The path is to actually kind of like leap off the ledge and really pursue parenthood. And so I think it was really 
tuning into that inner wisdom of knowing what truth feels like in your body. And I think that that's different for every single person. So, I mean, there's so many (laughs) pieces embedded in just this journey alone of like tuning into your own truth and knowing what truth feels like in your body and getting still and getting quiet and really examining your desires from a unbiased lens, which is pretty much impossible, right? But I think really challenging what you have been taught to want and taught to believe. So I think the other thing that really helps in that process is like not being somebody who really grew up like wanting to get married and then meeting my husband and just knowing that that's something that I wanted. So I had multiple experiences in my life of like when truth felt certain for me. And so I think when I started to arrive to that truth, that the more I started to envision my future with children, the way that it felt in my body was a really good affirmation for me that that was the right choice. But man, ambivalence is a very, very hard thing to navigate. And it is not a process that can necessarily be waded through very quickly. And so I think the thing that I would encourage is like to really learn how to find some comfort in that discomfort and not to rush the process because it's something that really can't be rushed. And I think the more we try and rush it, and this goes for everything in life, (laughs) the more frustrated we can become or the more confused we can become. And it's just kind of trusting that like the right answer is on its way. But I also think that we have to intentionally invite that answer in. And so what I mean by that is like, we have to consciously do the work of finding that answer (laughs) and not just trusting like, oh, it'll just fly in one day without me actually pursuing clarity around it. Right. And so I think that's where like the therapeutic space can be really helpful, continuing to engage in, in conversation around this topic that you're trying to figure out and just really staying engaged in the process is going to be really, really helpful as you arrive to your own right answer. I think the other thing that I would add here too is when I was navigating this process, there were so many people in my world that were like, you would make such a great mother though, right? And it's like, just because you would be good at something doesn't mean that you should necessarily do it. (laughs) And I think that goes for lots of different things in life. But I think it was interesting getting that feedback and really having to sit with that and just how easy people are like, yeah, I mean, you'd be good at it. Why wouldn't you do it, right? It's like, because that isn't necessarily a reason to go and do something just because you would be good at it. So I think that that's the other thing of navigating this is you're going to get lots of feedback. And sometimes it can be very frustrating. I think, especially like being a mom now, like there's lots of feedback about lots of things. And so really just kind of having some boundaries around that was helpful too. Oh, I'm so glad you said both of those things. First of all, the part about therapy, lots and lots of therapy, like how do you figure out what you want and what you know and what you believe to be true and figure out so much more about ourselves. This idea that we are reflected selves and that we are who we are in in relationship to each other, like we learn so much about who we are. I couldn't agree more. To me, therapy has been so useful in just having someone study you and watch you and observe you and see your patterns and reflect back to you, hey, this is happening for you. Or do you know that this is your typical response to these kinds of situations? Or you're shying away from talking about these particular things. It is, as my husband always says, I don't like it. It's not easy, but it's definitely good for me. So I'm so glad you brought that up. We are such advocates of therapy over in our household. And I feel so, so grateful that we get to go. And I also love that you talked about 
getting unsolicited feedback, right? If therapy is your begrudging solicited feedback area, then getting that unsolicited feedback or those pressed upon expectations from other people about who you should be and what you're supposed to do, especially as women in this culture, you should be so many things that we can lose ourselves and lose our voice and lose our ways of knowing. I put this somewhere recently, but a quote just absolutely stopped me in my tracks. It was from Tara Sophia Moore about, here's the quote. She says, if you want to uphold the status quo in any patriarchal culture, rule number one, do not get your women listening to their bodies. Tara Sophia Moore. Oh, that one just gives me the chills because I think so much of our cultural conditioning is about separating us from our knowing and just hearing your story has been so helpful. So I want to turn now to your children. You have them. You have two of them, I believe. I think that's correct. And more importantly, I want to, I think you know where I'm going with this because I reached out to you beforehand and I was like, I really would like to interview you about the birth story of your second kid. Because I think that people listening, anyone who is living in the pandemic and going into a birth situation that feels overwhelming and different and not what you expected and not what you planned can probably benefit from hearing you talk about it. So I would love to ask you, tell us about your parenting journey and feel free to take as long as you want to tell us about the, I'll be here. I'm on Boxer. However, I also know that you have two kids. So, so you, know, you have to stitch this together. Or you can only share for a few minutes. Tell us about your parenting journey and what it was like to have the first kid. And we'll go from there. Because I know there's so much in this story, your partner being on deployment, being a single mom while you were raising a kid, having to call in your village, having to move so many times, and then what happened with your second one. So let's dig in. Tell me all the things, if you would. You know, it's interesting because I can't really tell my second (laughs) birth story without also talking about the first, because I think that having my second child, there was so much hopeful redemption (laughs) embedded in what I think my whole family was hoping that that experience would be like for us because the first one was fairly traumatic. So I ended up, had had planned C-sections for both of my children. The first child, we ended up, it wasn't an emergency C-section, but I went in for my pre-op And I had started to come down with preeclampsia. And so they decided to go ahead and deliver my son early. And my parents had planned to be there. Like there were so many plans in place. At the time we were living in Montgomery, Alabama. My parents were living in Charleston, South Carolina. So sitting on that hotel, I mean, not hotel, (laughs) sitting on that hospital bed, (laughs) hooked up to machines and just feeling scared, obviously never being in that experience before, hoping that the baby was okay. And then feeling like I was supposed to have like all this time to like mentally prepare for surgery. And then all of a sudden it's happening now. And I remember just being really scared and my husband holding my hand and we were getting ready to go back. And we were both just like staring at each other in this like big 
pregnant pause of we knew we were about to become parents and we kind of felt thrown into it all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, even though we had had like this whole 10 month, nine month journey of getting ready. And that birth was hard in many ways because I hemorrhaged really badly afterwards. I don't remember the first six hours of being a mom because I had to have so many blood transfusions. And I mean, there's just a lot of things that happened in that birth and it was very scary for everybody involved and my parents weren't able to be there like they wanted so all of these things just with the first birth so going into the second one there's all of this I mean I guess pressure if you will it didn't really feel like pressure it just felt like hope for a different experience this time around so my mom had flown in way early, you know, just in case something like that happened again. And we had to move forward with the C-section earlier than planned. And everything was like going much better. And three days before we were set to go and have a C-section, my husband came down with the flu. And obviously that's super scary because you're getting ready to have a baby. I didn't know if he was going to be able to be in the delivery room with me and with the prior experience of hemorrhaging and all these things, like that was a very scary idea. So I was like, well, worst case scenario, if he can't be there with me, my mom can, right? And so my husband started quarantining in the house and just staying away. And with everything going on, like I went and got tested for the flu and I was negative and we had everybody else go and get tested just to make sure that we were taking all the precautions. And so the day before I was set to deliver, my parents had gotten the results of their test back and my mom had tested positive. My dad was okay, <laughs> but my dad and I, we don't have this super emotional type relationship. So <laughs> the idea of him being my person and my anchor was just like comical to everyone. <laughs> but I remember getting the news and I felt like I'd been okay. Like, and I think this is like military spouse stuff of like, you take in a piece of news and you just kind of swallow it down. And you're like, okay, this is real. And this is reality. And we will be okay. And we'll take the next step and all of this. And like, that's like how my frame of mind was, right? Of like, okay, the husband has the flu. He has been quarantining. We don't know what that looks like. Okay. Take the next step forward, right? My mom can be there. Now she has the flu. Okay. Now I'm like preparing to go into birth basically by myself. I mean, it felt like emotionally by myself, even if my dad was going to be there. And I went to the clinic on Tuesday and I can't remember exactly what I was going for. So I was set to deliver on Wednesday. And I remember sitting in the parking lot, literally just breaking. And I called my best friend, like just sobbing in tears of like, I can't do this. Like I am terrified of doing this. Like I am so scared of what is about to happen and not having like my two main anchors with me. And I remember coming home, like still in tears and I was in my living room and literally like my family is all around me, but has to stay distanced, right? Like they can't touch me. They can't breathe on me. They can't hug me. They cannot provide any level of physical comfort. And I was on my knees in the middle of that room, just breaking tears, literally felt like I was sitting in a puddle and I was looking at them and they were looking at me like we're all crying. And there's this just deep <laughs> tension in the room of like wanting to console each other. And literally we're all in our own little bubbles. And I think it was like that moment. I've reflected back to that moment many times of like, this was this huge realization of when we are in deep pain and deep sorrow, it just wants to be held. 
And I think that moment was just almost like that worst fear coming true, like being in a room surrounded by people that you love and still feeling all alone. And that was that moment for me. So the day before I was set to go and deliver my second child. So it was almost like all of the dreams of like how this second time around was going to go were just completely shattered. Right. And we're all like, wow, (laughs) couldn't have seen that coming. Everyone in my house was wearing masks, was wearing gloves, was sanitizing like crazy. Like it was like the flu apocalypse. Right. And then in the back of my mind, it's like, how are we supposed to come back to this house? after we have this baby, right? Like it didn't even feel like it was a safe space bringing brand new little soul into a house where there is rampant flu, right? And at this point, my oldest child hadn't gotten it yet. My dad was still okay. And while we were at the hospital, like then my son got it. And then my dad, like it was just a mess. Like people started dropping around me like flies. So It was the most stressful experience of my life. And I think the other thing that was so heavy with this, Sarah, is that I knew my husband was leaving in three weeks for six months, right? And so every single day that I could not touch him, could not be with him, it just felt excruciating because it felt like those days were so precious. And even when I came home with our baby, like he had to be so limited with the involvement with it. I ended up quarantining in our house for a week just to make sure that like the baby was okay and I was okay because that was top priority. And so all of these precious moments of us bonding as like a brand new family of four did not happen. Like so many things I felt like (laughs) just kind of ripped away. And I also knew that on the backside of it, it was going to be a really long time before we got to have those precious moments as a family all together because he was going to be leaving. So that experience was the hardest thing ever. Like I remember all of the dates. I remember everything so vividly. And it was just, it felt like I was living in like an apocalyptic world is what it was. It was almost surreal. And so the fact that I know moms right now are like literally living (laughs) in a flu apocalyptic world. I just, I can't even imagine what that feels like. I know the fear of wondering, are your people going to be able to be with you? Like in this very vulnerable moment, right? Like I know those feelings and I know the feelings of going home and not knowing (laughs) is the world safe to bring my child into from like a health standpoint. I know all of those things and it's just, it's really hard when your vision for a huge, big life event like this just gets rocked and you have to create a new story in the middle of it, right? There's so much just mental and emotional energy that goes into like even finding your footing through it because it's so intense as it is. And then you add in all of these other layers and it's just like next level. Right. And I think the thing is too, is I remember going in for delivery that day. And the thing that I didn't realize is like when they started to put in all the IVs and everything to prepare for surgery, I was feeling totally calm, but my body was not. And I remember like my heart started racing. The baby's heartbeat started racing. Like they called the trauma team, like everyone rushed in. We're about to have to do an emergency C-section, which is really scary. My husband's face was like, I can't go through this again. Like, I do not want to lose my life. Like all of this trauma from the first time came surging back. And I was like, you know, I felt mentally calm, but 
it was almost like my body hadn't forgotten what it had gone through. And that was a very weird experience. And luckily, everything kind of calmed down. But it was weird. Like, I don't think I knew how traumatic that first birth experience had been for me because I didn't remember any of it consciously, right? I was literally unconscious for many of those hours. I remember bits and pieces, but my body knew. And that was a very weird situation. And so just to kind of like wrap up the story, they did let my husband into the delivery room. He had to wear a mask. There were lots of precautions that had to be taken. He had been on Theraflu for the bare minimum number of days. And so they allowed him in, but he still was like not really touching the baby a lot or anything like that. But he was there with me. So luckily he was able to come. My mom was not able to be there, which was heartbreaking for all of us. There was just a lot of things that shifted, <laughs> which way different than than we had imagined. But it was a wild thing to live through, for sure. And I think my heart is just with every mama right now who is moving into like the delivery phase and the coming home phase and just all the things that you thought it was going to be are now maybe a lot different, maybe a little different. But I think the level of difference is still something that we have to cope with in different ways on our own. And I'll tell you, sharing this journey now, I hear so much grief in it. And I think that that's the thing that I don't think the world talks about a lot when it comes to birth stories is the grief that I think is very commonly present when things don't go according to plan or you have trauma, things that you definitely didn't anticipate, right? Like when things go really wrong or really scary. And I think that that's the thing of like, even just with the motherhood journey, it's been a lot of like unpacking the grief associated with each birth. And I think that's the thing that as we move into this season, like all of us are experiencing grief to some degree, whether we're getting ready to have a baby or not. And I just think that's something that we need to intentionally hold space for, for ourselves, but also for each other, that there's, you know, grief is present so often in our lives. But I, I wasn't anticipating that so much with the birth journey with either of my children. And now it's like, it's so obvious to me, right? It's like, of course there's grief of like going through like really hard experiences like that. And I think that there's like a, an emotional recovery period for that too, right? You know, luckily having planned C-sections, I knew that that was how I was going to deliver my babies for a long time before I even became a mom because I had a tumor removed when I was like in my early 20s. And they had said at the beginning of, if you do have babies, plan on having a C-section. And like, I never really questioned that. Like, I guess I could have if I wanted to, because I know that people have had vaginal births after C-section, but I felt like, I don't know, that was just something that was like, okay for me. And so I had made my peace with that a long time before, but I think if I hadn't, and I was planning on a vaginal birth, that would probably be something else that would have contributed some grief to the whole journey too. So I just wanted to mention that because I think that oftentimes we think about birth as this beautiful, joyful, life-changing experience. <laughs> and it is. And it can also hold a lot of other emotions too. Megan, my, oh my God, I got chills and I wanted to cry. I just like listening to parts of that story and hearing like the deep pain of wanting to be held by somebody else and wanting to be with your people while you're going through this 
incredibly difficult and thing that you don't know how it's going to go and you haven't done it before or you have done it before and there's memories of it. Like I just, I'm there with you. I'm listening to it and I just feel so much of what you went through. I am curious about what you bring up about trauma and birth and processing, because I know that you also have training as a therapist. And so you have some insight onto this as well. I'm curious for you, what did you do with anything? What are you doing? How are you still processing? Like, Given that so many women go through experiences like this and birth can be a process of incredible change and frustration, it can be challenging in so many different ways because it blows apart our expectations of what we think is going to happen and who we think we're going to be and how we think we'll react. What have you done to deal with it and or what did you do and did it work so well like it's not like we have an easy like okay now I'm experiencing grief and I'm going to do a b c and d because I know how to deal with this and I know what my grief looks like I'm reminded of Liz Gilbert who just did a podcast with Tim Ferriss and she talked about how much rage she felt after the love of her life died Raya and that grief for her she was so angry and she's like, I need to stop being angry. I just want to grieve. And she finally realized that this was her grief, like that her grief even surprised her. So I'm curious if you can talk to some of this, what does it look like for you? What does it feel like? And is there anything that helped? And I doubt it's neat and tidy. I'd love to know if you're learning what you're learning about yourself through this process as you're living it. Definitely not neat and tidy. (laughs) So, you know, at this point, it's been two and a half years since I had my second one. And what's interesting about trauma, and I think what's even interesting about grief is that it has this compounding effect, right? And what I mean by that is that when we don't have adequate space and time to really sit with one trauma or one grief to process that. And then new things happen that are added on. It's like, it all could just kind of snowballs. And that's exactly what my experience was. So, you know, we had my second little boy during the flu apocalypse. (laughs) We had to self quarantine for a week. We had two short weeks as a family of four. I moved my family to South Carolina to live with my parents for the first five weeks. So I had some familial support. So that was a huge change. Then we came back to our house in Texas and starting to learn how to do this. It was just like one thing after the other, right? And at that point, my husband was deployed. So I had my mom's support for the first two months, which was, oh my gosh, such a blessing to have another adult in the house who really just knew how to like show up and take care of babies and just, it was a godsend for sure. And then she left (laughs) and then it was like, three months of doing this on my own. And that, I mean, just the sleep exhaustion and breastfeeding and I mean, all of the things. And I will say, let's see. I remember going through all of that. There's so much on my shoulders that I was literally just taking the next step and the next step and just like getting through the days. Like I was strict survival mode at that point. And there was something about that time where it was really hard for me to be present for my own emotions. And so like, I knew that there were things that I needed to process and it also didn't feel safe 
for me to process them because I didn't know (laughs) what that process was going to ask of me. And so I remember just struggling to cry, like struggling to let myself go there. And I remember just saying like, once my husband gets home, I can relax and I can let all this out. Right. And so he got back in the middle of July and there was like this buildup of like, there's going to be this huge release, this huge emotional release. I can finally just kind of like collapse in his arms. And then there wasn't a huge emotional release. It was kind of more adjustments of like, now we're getting used to being a family of four. And now he's like reorienting towards our household. And like, there was all this other new stuff. And I was, oh my gosh, when is it going to be time to feel my feelings? (laughs) And I remember I went away for my birthday that year, which the end of July. And I was like, I just, at this point, I just needed to cry. Like I needed to go and have an emotional release. Like it just felt all this tension in my body. And so I rented an Airbnb. I went away for the night, packed my breast pump, like (laughs) still can't be fully present for myself. Right. And I remember sitting in that tub and trying to emote. (laughs) And there was all this built up emotion. And finally, I started to cry. And the first moment that I went back to was that day on my knees in my living room, surrounded by everybody I loved. Like that was the moment I went back to. And it was here that I realized that I had not processed anything else (laughs) that had happened since that point. And that was a very interesting experience of like, wow, so we have some compounded grief and trauma here. It's probably going to take some time to work through, right? So I go home after like one cry, which is not nearly sufficient for like processing any of this. And then we go into all of these other life experiences of finding out that our oldest child has special needs and starting to get therapy for him. We are going through marriage upheaval. We find out we're moving. We go into 2019 and we have 47 showings on our house in 100 days, like one thing after another, after another. And so I'm doing the best that I can to try and process everything <laughs> in the moment And also knowing that there is lots of old stuff that I still need to to hold space for. And honestly, I was journaling at that point. I was having a lot of conversations, but there was something that was telling me like until I was on the other side of this and I felt some sense of relief that life had finally created some level of normalcy, (laughs) was I able to truly like take an exhale? And that's when I really kind of started the deep unpacking of all this of we moved to Omaha, we got settled in our house, and really started to prioritize myself and what I needed, started going to therapy again, to just have that space of processing all of this and just unpacking it all. And it has been a super long journey (laughs) of getting to a place where I feel like there's even any sort of semblance of healing. And so now two and a half years later, I'm finally feeling like a lot of those things have been processed and I've lived through them and I've, I've started to mine them for their wisdom and for their gold, right? And it's interesting because like being in this pandemic now, there's just new reflection points of me looking back on 2018 and 2019 of just how much it showed me what I can handle. There's so many lessons and just going down to bare minimums of like when you're in survival mode, really taking the pressure off yourself. So you're not creating more grief or more struggle, more suffering that is really unneeded. So 
lots of things, lots of gifts came from all of this experience, but it has been a journey that has definitely in no way, shape or form (laughs) been neat or tidy and unpacking. And one other thing that I wanted to mention, just like reflecting on all of this, going through 2018 while also leading 20 other women in a leadership program, this challenged the way that I share my wisdom and like things had to really, really change of like going through all the sleep exhaustion and just how much I was being taxed. So the thing that I had to learn how to do is like, I'm used to just speaking off the cuff and my words just being there. And that has always been something that I feel like I have always been able to articulate thoughts very well, communicate in a really strong way, just have like a really rich vocabulary, like all of these things. And let me tell you, like 2018, none of those things were there because like literally I felt like I couldn't even complete a sentence. And so when I would show up to teach, like the first time I showed up to teach, I was like, this is really hard. I feel like I'm going to need more support here (laughs) to show up and make sure that I deliver because I knew that I had all this wisdom inside of me, but it felt like I just could not access it in the moment. And so what I did back then is I started writing out my content ahead of time to just kind of give me the headspace to like conceptualize thoughts. So I didn't feel that pressure in the moment, which that was huge. But the thing that happened through that experience, like coming out on the other side, when I started to feel like less sleep deprived and all of these things, is like I was expecting those dots to connect a lot easier and quicker and just come back online, like automatically. And they didn't. And the thing that I discovered through that was that I had stopped trusting myself to have the right words in the moment. And that has been something that I have had to intentionally rebuild the past year and a half for sure, like all of 2019 and this year is really starting to trust myself that when I show up to speak that my words will be there and that I am not in that like sleep exhausted phase that I was in in 2018, that the old me is still present. And I've really had to cultivate a stronger connection with her and rebuild some of that self-trust. And so that was something I totally would not have expected (laughs) to have happened through all of that too. So the other thing that I'll share too, is like, I remember right before we moved to go to Omaha, my husband was still traveling. And so he had to go away for five weeks right before we moved. And so there was all of this stuff moving up of like, okay, once we finally move, everything's going to get a lot easier. And there was like this last like <laughs> little stab in the side and twist of the knife to have like five weeks of like solo parenting after all of this, right? And I remember one night I was standing in my foyer and the kids were crying and it was this moment of overwhelm. And I actually had a flashback to a year prior in 2018, feeling totally alone and abandoned and like no one else is coming. And that was the moment (laughs) where I knew, like without a shadow of a doubt, that this experience had been traumatic for me. Having that flashback was like, whoa, that was a really big aha of like, I feel like this has really done a number on me, right? (laughs) Which was all the more incentive to really prioritize what my mental health needed on the other side of this. So it's just wild, like everything we go through as mamas, it really, really is. And just how it starts to spill out into like all these other areas of our lives. But yeah, the trauma work and coming back to like trusting myself, 
unpacking all of this, what this experience has given me. I mean, I, I still feel like there are times where I go back and I'm still mining because there are just so many lessons and all of that. But I think that's the beauty of grief and trauma is that it challenges you like nothing else, but it also gives you gifts like nothing else. So being on the other side now, lot of feeling so much more solid and steady and more nourished and replenished and all of those things. I think that that helps immensely in being able to see the positives. But there are still days where I, I still like angry that I had to go through all of that or, you know, there's still pieces of myself that I miss and I am a little bitter or resentful. That part of me hasn't returned and maybe it never will. And I think that that's kind of just the way life goes. Like it, it shifts us and it shapes us and we don't know how it's all going to work out, but we just have to kind of do what we can and be really present and compassionate for ourselves and journey forward and trust the process. I so identify with so much of this. With the process you're describing of waiting, almost like waiting for the emotions or knowing that the emotions are coming. Like I, when am I going to cry? When am I going to release? When am I going to be allowed to let go? When am I going to finally feel some relief? And then feeling both when you're going through the bigness of grief, whatever it looks like for you, whatever losses are coming, sometimes feeling like you can't even feel the emotions yet. Like our bodies are protecting us in some way, or we're just not, it's so big, it's hard to feel. And then they come in waves and we slowly begin to unpack parts of them. But then also this idea that we are waiting for something to change and then we'll be allowed to feel. I'm just, I'm hearing some of this in what you're saying in how we can go through periods of our lives and set aside the emotional component until later. And hearing you speak about it and talk about how your hopes or expectations for when your husband got home or when you made it through the hospital or that the next birth would be a certain way. This really speaks to me because I think, I think it, this is one of the most challenging parts of being a human is having these expectations of how things will go. We're going to move and it'll be okay. Or the pandemic will be over by X date or when the pandemic is over, then this will happen. Or this is what my birth will be like, or this is what my second birth will be like, or this is what it'll be like when I'm a mother. I think two of the hardest things for me, I mean, I'm not even going to categorize them that way, but I will just say that some of the hard things for me were, I thought I really wanted to be pregnant and I expected that I would enjoy pregnancy. And both of those things were really challenging for me. I was not expecting what was coming. I had antenatal like depression during pregnancy the first time around because I really felt like the life as I knew it was ending. I was very sad and very depressed about it. And then also I had expectations for what motherhood would be like and the kind of parent I would be. And then really facing those internal beliefs and stories and expectations I had. There's a lot of grief and suffering that comes up when we are faced with a life that we're living that it's different than our expectations. And now it's got to be what everybody is going through. People got pregnant eight, seven, six months ago, and they were not expecting or planning for a pandemic while they were pregnant and they weren't giving birth and they were not planning on being shuttered at home and socially isolated. And there's so much devastation that can happen in that experience, in our attachment to an idea of what we want. We are allowed to be sad because of it. And then there's the experience of being sad and the rewriting of our stories and our narratives and our reconciliation of what is. 
Oh, I have so much I want to ask you about this. And I'll be honest, I am listening back to these messages a few times. So people listening know that we're doing this interview via Voxer. And I have had this in my inbox for a few days now. And I've listened to it and I've had so much to say. And then I've listened to it again and I've had more I want to tell you. And then I've listened again. And I have even more questions for you. I just I haven't told you yet. Thank you for telling us all of this and for going there and feeling it and exploring it with me. It's really, it's really powerful. The other thing that you said, I mean, there's so much here that I want to unpack, but the other thing that you said that was so, I just was like, yes, 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 to was when you mentioned the experience of not being able to just like reach for things and have them readily available in your mind when you're that sleep deprived and that tired, or you're going through something new, it's not just that you have less time or that the kiddo is hard. It's that you and your operating system are completely different. I was like, I can identify with that so much. And that was one of the hardest transitions to motherhood is that the things that you don't even know that you rely on, the way you operate, the shorthand that you use, the notes that you use, basically the quick key commands of your brain. It is so disorienting to feel like you have lost part of yourself in the way that you work. And for me, I had to really approach it like, oh, I'm learning a new skill or I'm learning something new, or I have to figure out how to do this in a new way, which can be really frustrating because you're already learning how to do hundreds of other things at the same time. And having massively steep learning curves ahead of you in every direction you face is just so overwhelming. When you said you had to learn how to not just show up and be on the fly, but start to write out your content in advance, I totally understand exactly what you mean and what that experience is like. And so much for me has changed too, because I've gotten to be a much better listener. I've done the podcast and I have been stuck under babies for a long time. So I'm now able to listen and absorb content in a way. I used to be such a reader and now I listen as much as I like read words. It's so interesting how we can grow and change through this, although it definitely doesn't feel easy. But what I want to come back to here is you said you needed more time to process it or you didn't have time to process it. And then later on, you said two and a half years later, I have processed a lot of it. Can you get granular and specific here? Because I think that we are a country and a civilization and a society that really doesn't look at processing grief and what that looks like or sounds like or feels like. And I know that you have a therapeutic background and you have more training and understanding of this. So for the novice person who is listening to this and they're, you know, 12 weeks postpartum or they're in pregnancy and they don't have grief training or grief tools, or they don't know what it would look like to process something. What are some of the tools and skills that you use? Like, how did you process and what do you recommend or use with other people? So I have another question I want to ask you. I want to ask you about now that you are inside of motherhood, you're still in, as am I, in the early, the, the young children years. What is it like? Is it anything what you expected or anticipated? What has it been like to become a parent? And what are the good parts and the bad parts? What are the things that you wish people had told you in advance? You know, I have to laugh at this because there is this one experience where I happened to be at a party. And this was like maybe three years before I even started thinking about kids. And one of the girls there 
had had a little bit too much to drink and we were just sitting by the pool and she had like maybe a one and a half year old at the time. (laughs) She was like just in that nitty gritty phase of just high demand. Right. And I remember she said, don't have kids because it's going to change everything. And it was the first time that I had ever heard another woman encourage another woman not to have kids. And I am so grateful for that moment because out of everyone else that I'd ever talked to, I feel like there is this societal romanticism that happens around motherhood (laughs) that when you talk to people about it, it's like they tell you that it's hard, but it's worth it, right? And it's kind of like the same thing with marriage. It's like, well, yeah, marriage is like the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it's so worth it. And when you get inside of marriage, like that's true. When you get inside of motherhood, that's true. But it's like the ways that it's hard, (laughs) the ways that it challenges you, it can sometimes just be next level. And I think the other thing that I oftentimes come back to as well is, you know, I'm the oldest of four and my mom was one of those moms who just loved like the little tiny years. Like she was a preschool teacher, like that's just her thing. And I have really struggled a lot with these early years of just how intensely demanding it is, like physically demanding, mentally demanding, emotionally demanding, like all of the demands. (laughs) And my mom has reminded me, she says, you know, Megan, everyone has their favorite stage of motherhood and you're not going to love them all. And that is kind of the thing that I have held on to as I've navigated these early years, because if you would have told me like... And I guess I just had, I don't know, unrealistic expectations. Like I thought, of course, I'll be tired for that first year. You know, babies don't sleep. I didn't know I was going to be tired for like three years straight. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so it's kind of like what I thought was going to happen versus what actually has happened. There's like a big gap between those two visions. So I'm still very much kind of like I'm trying to find my joy inside of motherhood a lot of the times, honestly. And I think that that's something that maybe we don't necessarily talk as often about as moms is like, I crave different types of connection. Like I'm one who really craves deep, meaningful conversations. And of course, our little ones can't have (laughs) deep, meaningful conversations yet. And so the way that I'm being asked to connect is just different than what I'm used to. And it's not I'm necessarily my strong suit. And with my oldest having special needs, connecting with him is like a whole nother layer that goes into all of that. And so I think that like, that's the thing that maybe like, I definitely didn't think about, right? (laughs) It's like just forming relationships with in different ways than you might not necessarily be well-skilled at. And it's like, you're having to build that mastery and those skills in the moment. And I think that that's the thing of being like a high achieving woman is that I'm used to being good at things and like putting all my energy to where I excel. Right. And so with motherhood, it's like, I feel like those connection deficiencies (laughs) so often. It's like, I can't just check out from it. I have to like be present and like, learn to build this skill set. And it's not necessarily coming online as quickly as I want. So yeah. And I don't think anybody could have ever prepared me for that. Like I go back to my therapeutic training. I remember sitting, it was like in my last formal class before we went into practicum and actually started doing therapy. And at this point we had just learned so many theories and, and philosophies and tools. And yet I still didn't feel like I knew exactly how to do therapy. And I remember asking my professor one day, I was like, so when are you going to teach us how to actually do this? And she laughed and she says, oh, we can't teach you how to do therapy. You actually have to learn that by doing therapy. 
And I remember like sitting in my first few sessions and just learning how to dance with the emotions that were in the room. And it was like, nobody could ever teach you how to do that. We have to learn through the doing and motherhood is so much the same. But circling back to your question around what I wish somebody would have told me about motherhood and we're out on a walk now, so there might be more nature sounds in the background (laughs) is I wish that somebody would have told me that motherhood is going to call every aspect of you to the table, even the parts of you that you prefer not to hang out with. (laughs) Right. And what's really just so interesting to me is, you know, when I was first getting started in the coaching arena, my area of expertise was really around enoughness and worthiness. And a lot of the personal work that I was doing back then, I'm um, just on my own journey was a lot of inner child healing and learning how to play more than just do and plan and achieve. And that was a really hard thing for me to learn how to do. <laughs> and so Now that my children are at their age that they are, like the way that they learn is through play. The way that they connect is through play. And that's a part of me that I've really had to work at and strengthen within myself, right? And so I think it totally makes sense that (laughs) these earlier years are a little bit more of a struggle for me. But I also think it's helpful to reframe it in that perspective because different stages of motherhood are going to ask for different aspects of you and not every single aspect of us is either our favorite part of ourselves or the strongest part of ourselves. And when you're struggling, it doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. (laughs) I think that that's the thing. So I think it's really easy for us to like question, did I make the right decision? This is really hard. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. I've definitely had those thoughts. (laughs) So just kind of keep in mind that this is just, you know, it's calling forth a part of you that you might not feel like super connected with or like have a strong skill set with and there will be other seasons too this is a whole long journey (laughs) and where you are right now is not where you're always going to be Megan this is all like I'm just listening in awe and feeling so empathizing with all of it and just feeling so much oh my gosh yes me too me too me too and wanting to just echo so much of what you're saying especially that part where you said you said like you used to be like really good at showing up and kind of winging it and you could tap into a part of your brain that you're just seamlessly it's like you're so skilled at dancing with a part of yourself and then you've walked into a room and you no longer know how to dance you're like learning the steps again you're like what's happening I knew how to do this like why is this so challenging for me learning that is one of the biggest and hardest and roughest parts of motherhood for me in my experience and I know a lot of women talk about this. It's like, why is something that used to be easy for me so hard? And your answer when you said like, what I wish someone had told me about motherhood, about like, just that it will call forth a part of yourself that you didn't even know existed. And it will bring out parts of yourself that you might not like, like there may be like facets of our personality and the way we show up for things and the way we respond. And even our emotional response to having children, to becoming a mother, to being in partnership, where we may say like, well, you know, I don't like this, right? There's a lot of this, that this is not like peak self. This is not ideal, but also that there's so many different seasons and flavors to it. I remember when a good friend of mine said, she's like seven years older than me. So when I was 33, she was 40 and she had gone through the young kids phase and now it's school-aged kids. And she said something I've never heard anyone say. And she was like, you know, under age five, not for me. Like the little kids just doesn't, they don't do it for me. I just find it so 
boring and relentless and so much work and so fatiguing. And she's like, but school age kids, oh, that's my sweet spot. I can't get enough of them. I take them to baseball games. We go play in the park. I pick them up after school. We have awesome conversations in the car. They're so creative. I love dreaming with them and drawing with them and hiking with them. And I was like, oh my gosh, you can like different parts of motherhood in different ways. That's amazing. And like, I remember so viscerally not feeling like I thought any less of her. I thought, oh, of course, it makes so much sense now that you've said it. So I just love that you're saying things like this. So I want to spend just a few more moments here on kind of the recovery aspects. You mentioned something about how you thought when your partner came home that you like, oh, and now things will turn like there's this expectation of how things would be. And there's just so much longer in somebody's trying to. A four-year-old is trying to come into my bedroom right now, so I may get interrupted. But it took so much longer than you expected to kind of like process and recover. And how I think that this is important, especially for people listening, that it can take quite a long time. If you're in survival mode for two years, the processing of trauma can happen later, right? Sometimes it only is just beginning late down the line. Like you're just surviving. And then there comes a moment where you're exhaling. You're like, okay, now I've got all this work of processing and the processing can take a long time. So I'm curious. I don't know if you can hear in the background, by the way, there's like someone trying to get into my, that's four-year-old's very distracting, but (laughs) how did you recover and how are you currently processing the traumas that you went through of being a single mom and not having the support system that you needed and even the expectations of motherhood that were probably blasted right open and more specifically I would love also take a lens of sharing with people someone who's never been to therapy someone who doesn't know that trauma is something that we can process and work through and and resolve what kind of maybe not resolve right but like really help heal or ease I think you might have better words for me than this but imagine the person listening who is just starting to emerge from two years of really rough postpartum experiences or had a surprising birth or is even having that nagging feeling of like man I thought birth would be different how would you talk to them about like even just beginning the process of inquiry and understanding? What tools and skills and ideas can you share with them? So I think the hardest thing about being in survival mode for such a long time and the moments of trauma that it created for me is that when I went to go heal it, which I'm still in process of, you know, like there's still things that will pop up from time to time, but I know how to recognize those now. So I think the thing that's hard when you're healing is that it wasn't just one event or one little thing that happened that led to the trauma. And in my case, that meant when it came to healing, it wasn't going to be just one big thing that I needed to shift, but actually creating like a wealth of little tiny shifts that added up to a really big result. And so I think having somebody in a therapeutic role or even a coaching role who can really just hold that space as you navigate and find those things that are going to be restorative for you is so incredibly helpful. But also there is so much power in just simply sharing your story. And I think that's where so much perspective can come in of just 
voicing your story, telling it, all the intimate details. So it can be witnessed. And I think even just having all of this struggle witnessed is really reassuring and comforting. And to have somebody mirror back to you hard pieces that maybe you didn't see or expectations that you were putting on yourself that you weren't aware of. And I think it's through the actual telling of your story that you can start to see how maybe like systems that are operating in the background were contributing to how heavy a time period was, right? And I think a lot of us as moms... I don't know how much of us or how many of us are really aware of just how much like systemic expectations are present for what it means to be a good mom. And for me, looking back at the traumas, like it wasn't just healing like my story, but healing the story of motherhood that I was carrying. And that's still a very much ongoing process. I mean, I think as we're seeing right now of really seeing how white supremacy and racism are so deeply embedded in our culture in the U.S. and all of the tiny ways that that shows up, all of the big ways that it shows up, it starts to radically shift how you view the world, how you view yourself, how you view your upbringing, how you view the expectations that you hold of what is good. Like it really shakes a lot of foundational principles for you. And the same is true for motherhood. And so I think having a space to share your story and working with someone who can mirror all the subtle ways that we put extra expectations on ourselves that creates an extra layer of struggle, I think is really important. But the recovery period, I think for me, and this has kind of been one of my favorite parts in a way, because it has created a way for me to intentionally like rebuild myself, rebuild my practices, rebuild rituals, just rebuild little tiny pieces that are so important and special and sacred to me to really help me start to feel the way that I want to feel. And I think that that is such an ongoing process, especially when we go through any type of like really big change we're going to need different things. And so I think for me, the thing that I walked away from with that is that I need micro self-care, which are little tiny things that I'm doing every single day to prioritize myself. But I also need macro self-care. And macro to me is so incredibly important. And it's also the hardest for me to fit in because macro is like taking a good solid chunk of time away to really fully restore. And looking back at 2018, I did not have a lot of macro self-care at all. Like it literally was not a possibility um, when my husband was deployed. Like there's no one there for me to get, I just literally could not get away. And so when he came back, I remember taking like three days to myself just to really restore. And like, I totally disconnected from social and my devices. And I went to a resort and had a spa day and it was amazing just so I could like literally hear my inner voice. And I, having that experience, I realized like this has to be something that's part of that happens like at least every six months, hopefully every quarter. Right. And so now that COVID is here, that isn't really a possibility. (laughs) And so I can feel myself really needing that macro self-care and really having to get curious of what that looks like right now when travel isn't really a possibility or uh, maybe going into a hotel room for three nights or so to restore is something that just has more challenges. So I think that's where I'm really having to get curious. But 
Wow. Just even the realization that like micro is the thing that helps us maintain (laughs) macro is the thing that helps us really restore. And both are incredibly important. And I think finding like the right mix or blend of those things has been so essential and will continue to be so essential for just prioritizing me. So I'm not just in survival mode, but truly thriving. Megan, this is so interesting to listen to and hear. And I I don't remember where I heard this or where I learned this. My memory sometimes gets fuzzy and I wonder if like it was in my brain or if it was from somebody else. I mean, I'm pretty confident that everything is mostly from somebody else. But I heard someone say once that like when you tell your story, your story moves. And and it's so true. Like part of I think for me the therapeutic process of understanding birth is telling birth stories over and over again. And I was part of a mom's group after the birth of my second child. And we all spent six weeks together and she put us in small groups and we just talked about our birth stories. And then we talked about all sorts of different prompts and stories. And it was so wonderful to get to share the experiences It's something that I want to do more of with Startup Pregnant and with all the mamas that listen to the podcast and who are probably listening right now. I have always wanted to create these motherhood and parenting talk circles where we could just come together and share our stories and create a container where it's safe to do so and where people aren't trying to fix anything or solve anything for you, but just listen to your story as you tell it and be there for you. I think it's so powerful and I'm so glad that you shared that. So I want to wrap up here by, well, first of all, thanking you for taking the time and sharing your story and your process and your processing and everything that you've been through. And I also want to ask you if you would tell us about your teachers, like who do you learn from past and present? Who has inspired you and who are you newly learning from? And what does the next couple of years look like for you right now? If you even can answer that question, because we are in the middle of so many things going on. Motherhood can be such a cataclysmic event. And then we're going through parenting and COVID-19 and some of the largest civil rights movements of, if not the last 10 years, the like last half century. So who do you learn from? Who are your teachers? And what's next for you? Goodness, such big questions. Oh, man. I think as I look into the future, my focus is really on helping more equity-driven entrepreneurs make more money and keep more money so they can wield that money in some really intentional ways. The biggest pieces on my priority list right now are really getting the money map out to as many people as possible because it's just such a potent tool for helping you get a grasp on your numbers and how your business needs to be making more money in a sustainable way. So I'm really excited about that. And then getting my podcast relaunched, I really want to kind of really shift gears and dive deeper into money, especially how we create feel good money in our lives and businesses. So I'm really excited to get back on the airwaves and behind the mic and just start having more conversations again. Cause my podcast has been on hiatus for about six months now. So I'm really excited to rebrand that and relaunch it and just start connecting with people again in that way. Cause I've always loved podcasting. It's been something I've done since 
2015. So it's, it's like one of my favorite mediums for sure. As far as who I've been learning from, I have been working with Viva Aurora, who is a conscious parenting and positive discipline coach. She also has a degree in marriage and family therapy and brings so many like woo skills to the table too, through like hypnosis and EFT and subconscious processing. So she has been a gift to have in my corner as you know, me and my husband kind of continue to look at our parenting journey and what we want that to look like and just bringing more intention to how we're parenting and how we're being together as a couple. So that's been amazing to have her. And as far as people that I'm learning from right now, you know, I'm reading a lot, especially from Black Voices with the civil rights movement that's happening right now. I'm listening to How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi on my bike rides in the morning, which is a really, really powerful book. I highly recommend. I just finished Untamed by Glennon Doyle, and Glennon always brings some really powerful insights and wisdom. And then I'm also reading Black Fortunes, which is the history of the first six Black millionaires in the United States. States. And there's some really powerful stories in there and entrepreneurial wisdom that's really inspiring just to hear the determination that it took to create empires when oppression was so incredibly intense. And it's still intense to this day, you know, but I really hope that we're a precipice for creating some big shifts for systemic change in this country. And not just with racism, but just like within patriarchy too, like how we're working and living and leading and the expectations we put on ourselves. Like, I really hope that we are at this, this softness where a lot of people are starting to ask bigger questions. And I think for me on a personal level, I just want to be part of that change of continuing to ask those big questions and continuing to push the world forward into a more equitable place. So that's my vision for the next few years. I really just see a lot of diverse entrepreneurs coming together to really create a more equitable world, create more money that feels good. And that's really allowing our brilliance to show up in some really powerful ways that works for us and works for our families. I've just made the recent decision to go down to working just two days a week, Mondays and Wednesdays right now, while the kids are home and my husband is mostly home. And so that feels like a really good shift. And every single time I have gone down to working really minimally, I've always had new creative ideas for how to make more by doing less. So I am curious and excited to see what new ideas come my way. But I know that with my focus being on the money map, I just really want to see that money mapping community grow and bring together just a lot of heart-centered women who want to get a grasp on their numbers and build money confidence and like, let's use that money for some good in the world. And that feels really exciting. Hey, everyone, just a heads up and a reminder, if you want to listen to our long form Ask Me Anything sessions, they are 30, 45, and sometimes 60 minutes in length. And they we go deep into questions that people have. If you want me to look at your business, you want me to comment on your marketing plan, or you have a question about parenting, pregnancy, or anything in between, we are taking listener questions and I answer them in a monthly Ask Me Anything fireside chat. It's available only to our Patreon supporters. So if you back us at the $7 a month level, you get access to this private podcast. You can get access to all of the past episodes, which is pretty cool. So if you're missing the podcast while we're on our hiatus and you want to take a listen in to these Ask Me Anything episodes, 
go over to Patreon and become a monthly backer at the $7 per month level and you'll get access to all of the future episodes as well as all of the past episodes. Keep in mind that you are also supporting the work of Startup Pregnant and our growth in these early days and that matters a ton. Every dollar helps and counts and we appreciate so much and are grateful for your support patreon.com slash startup pregnant will take you right there. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Did I spell that right? Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Yes. Patreon.com slash startup pregnant will take you there. The link will be right here in the show notes. You can go straight there. $7 a month and you get access to this entirely exclusive Patreon-only podcast. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And you know, I always say this, and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds, and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to StartupPregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.